we just really wanted dogs that we could go on big camping expeditions with too, like out in the park. Cause we live right on the edge of the park. You know, there's no trails there. You have to put them in yourself. So you need dogs that are pretty big with long legs and able to break trail in, the, in that deep snow out there. So we, we wanted dogs that could do it all. So ours are a little bit bigger. Hey folks, Mason here. Hope you're doing all right. A, a couple things before we get started. It, it probably sounds really different right now, my audio. That's because I'm coming from a hotel room in Estes Park, Colorado. I'm out here for the Outdoor Media Summit, where we're uh, just meeting with folks from the outdoor industry in media. So podcasters, bloggers, um, writers, of course, journalists, all sorts of stuff. It's been awesome sharing a lot of info about the podcast and about Athletic Brewing, who I work with. And uh, another thing is I forgot my headphones back home, so I'm going to do this intro and do listen to this episode through the speakers of my laptop rather than through headphones, which I usually do, uh, because that's the same experience you probably hear the podcast through, but I don't have my headphones with me. So if the audio is a little off from usual, I apologize. We'll be back to our regular program on Monday. But yeah, so I'm planning to go backpacking, and it's starting to snow here, which is kind of crazy. And I'm not sure this Florida boy can handle the snow and backpacking right now with how cold it is getting up in the high country. But it did get me in the mood for a winter-style episode. And so this is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. It's with Kristen Knight-Pace. And she is a, uh, or she was a ranger in Denali National Park, ranger by dog sled. So she'd literally patrol the park on dog sled, doing things, uh, collecting samples for for research and whatnot, and just lived one of the coolest lives I've ever heard. She has since moved away from Alaska, but she's written a book. We're going to talk about that. This episode's from at least a few years ago. And it's just one of my favorite conversations, and I thought it would just be such a cool thing to listen to as things are starting to cool down around the country so and around the world. So, oh, except for those of you that listen in the Southern Hemisphere, I guess it's starting to warm up, but um, you're probably used to that <laughs> by now. But all right, let's get into the episode. Hey, Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So you're coming from Alaska today, right? Yes, I am in Healy, Alaska, which is 11 miles north of the entrance to Denali National Park. Oh, wow. So do you have a good view of uh, Denali itself? So um, on our mushing trail, you can see Denali on a clear day. It's about 70 miles away as the crow flies but you can still see it loud and clear, which just is a testament to how huge the mountain is. Yeah, I, I've never seen Denali itself, but I've been in that area and could see some just huge mountains surrounding it, and uh, but didn't have a view of it. Yeah, yep. Even on, I mean, the mountains that I can see right outside my window, it's still all the Alaska range. Um, so still some mighty big peaks surrounding us from here. <laughs> Man, that that has to be just an inspiring place to work. Uh, and, and you just had a book come out. Yeah, it just came out on March 5th, so two days ago. Oh, very cool. That is awesome. Yeah, and I'm actually reading through it right now. And uh, man, I just, I'm absolutely loving uh, all the names of all the places and all that. It's just <laughs> been a blast to, to hear your kind of coming of age. Yeah, thank you. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, and have have you always been into writing? And, and kind of what is your backstory leading up to being a ranger and, and writing this book? Well, I I come from a writing background, so that that was the world I was in before I became a backcountry ranger. Um, I was the outdoors reporter for a newspaper in Montana where I went to school, and then I was the executive editor of Sea Kayaker magazine in Seattle for a little while, um, and then. After that, I was like, oh, man, I just can't be behind a desk anymore. So I applied to become a Knowles instructor and I got accepted and I went to the Wind Rivers in Wyoming and did my mountain instructor course with the National Outdoor Leadership School and um, started a career in public land. So I worked for the Forest Service right out of that um, Knowles instructor job um, and 
loved working for the Forest Service. And then <laughs> then that's kind of when everything started with the book. Um, like my book kind of picks up right there. And my life drastically changed at that point. And so um, it was kind of amazing to be able to take that writing background and then use it to help me get through what became a very painful divorce and um, a total last minute on a whim move to Alaska Holy <laughs> where cow. I was um, where I was taking care of a, this to- this total stranger's cabin and sled dogs like my friend had called me and was like, there's a guy up here in Alaska who um, is going through a divorce too. And he has this cabin and sled dog, like a team of eight sled dogs. And he needs somebody to take care of them for the winter. And I know that you're going through a hard time. And, you know, I thought maybe since you have experience with dogs, like you, you might be interested. And I was like, you know, I don't know if I can cuss on this show. Sorry. <laughs> like I have the worst mouth, but I was going to say, I can edit anything. Um, sc- <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> um, I was like, you know what? I, I definitely need to, to start my life over. So I'll be there in a month. And so I drove up with my two dogs, Moose and Maximus, and the three of us made the epic road trip up to Denali. And, um, you know, we thought we were just going to be here for five months over the course of the winter taking care of the dog team. But uh, now I've been here for 10 years. So having that story out in the world is pretty exciting for me. I've always wanted to write about my experiences and I have been published, you know, in magazines and newspapers a bit, but never have I embarked on the journey of a book. And I'm really proud of the work that I did and my editor and I worked super well together. Um, We just had a blast making this book a reality. So I'm just really proud of it and it couldn't be more me. Like the book is just totally me a hundred percent. Oh, and you, you definitely should be proud. I mean, that is quite an achievement. I love the story so far. I'm really enjoying the book, but one thing I notice is, Nothing takes you out of the the doldrums of depression like a like a good dark freezing cold winter in Alaska, <laughs> all alone. <laughs> I know. Oh my I goodness! Know. Um, oh man, yeah, it is. It it, ha- it definitely required like just deciding to say yes to these crazy opportunities. You know, like. I mean, I, I kind of noticed it like, yeah, I mean, it, it just seems like such a challenging lifestyle. Yeah, it is. It is so hard. I mean, I think, I think the fact that this lifestyle is so difficult is what ends up making it, um, simpler because you're spending all of your time just surviving. Like, you know, I'm working at the park and then I come home and we have 30 dogs to feed and scoop their poop and make sure everybody's healthy, go on runs, um, chop up meat to thaw for the next meal for the dogs. And then we have to haul water for us and all these dogs. Like we don't have running water. Um, and then to top it all off, the road blows in a lot in the winter. So last year we had no road access to our house for five weeks of the whole winter. And this year it's been two weeks so far. Um, that we, so like we park the car a mile away, we load all the five gallon cubes into a dog sled that's attached to the back of our snow machine. And then like put the two-year-old in my lap and snow machine a mile into our house, hauling all the water. And it's like, you're like, what the, what the hell am I doing? Like, this is, this is insane. Like life is so hard. Like even the simplest little things are so hard sometimes. And at the same time, you know, I talked to my friend who lives down in Colorado now and and she was like, I was reading your book. It's actually Karen who's in the book. Chuck oh, and yeah, Karen yeah, yeah. are like these formative people in the book. And and Karen was like, Yeah, you know, reading your book, like I was just thinking about how I miss how simple that lifestyle could be sometimes because down here you can't just go hang out in a cabin for like days when you're snowed in or get on a dog sled and go out and see the country in this super quiet way. Like it's, you know, yeah, it's a ton of hard work, but you're right. Like it does pay off. Oh yeah. No, I I get it. I mean, people, we live in Denver and, uh, 
man, people think we're out in the wilderness. It is a big freaking city. I feel like I'm in the middle of Orlando sometimes, which is where I came from. Oh, yeah. I mean, I lived there for a little bit. I went to the University of Denver for my freshman year of college. It definitely, and that was, you know, so long ago now. That was like 2001. No, no, 2002. Um, But it's changed a ton. And and even then I was like, nah, I can't do it. One of my wildlife biologist coworkers always calls Denali subarctic Disneyland. And it's like, it's hilarious because Sometimes it feels that way in the summertime with like all the visitor, the visitors like getting in trouble with bears and stuff. And it's like, it's just, I mean, really, it's really not like, look at, at least we're not living in the middle, in the heart of a city, you know, like (laughs) it could be so much crazier. It's just not that crazy out here. And I mean, at least in Denali, there's like the shuttle system. So you don't have these giant traffic jams around wildlife, which is great. Oh yeah, kind of, kind of like it is out in uh, Yellowstone half the time, and you see a, a, a deer on the side of the road, and there'll be an hour-long traffic jam, which is great. I appreciate people, you know, appreciating nature, but it can it can be a little frustrating. So, so what did your family think about what, what what did they think when you told them you were moving to Alaska? My family was super concerned. They were like, "What are you doing? You know, you're gonna you're going through a divorce." <laughs> And you're going to go like to the darkest, coldest place in the world in a one room cabin by yourself. Like, really? Yeah, I would have I would have definitely been worried about you. I know. I well, I they my family was was like seriously concerned. Like they were desperately trying to talk me out of doing this until finally. I mean, you'll see, you know, people who read the book will see. But finally, my dad was like, I'm going with you. And he made the drive with me up here that winter. Um because, I mean, he's an awesome dad. <laughs> but both of my parents have driven all the way up here with me before. And, in fact, they they just... So, my husband, Andy, just ran the Yukon Quest for the for his second time. Um, and he, we just finished the race last week, two weeks ago. Um, and so, my parents both came up and drove the whole entire race with me, 2,700 miles. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're like amazing badass road warrior parents. Anyway, total tangent. But um, the thing that that called to me about coming up here was I. So I had had an internship up here in Denali at the Sled Dog Kennels in 2006, like right when I graduated from the University of Montana, and uh, I spent the summer up here, and then the following winter. I came out on a dog sled patrol because Denali has the one working sled dog kennel in the park service. And so I, I got to see all my dog friends in action doing their jobs, which was the coolest thing ever, but it was incredibly difficult. Like I write about it in the book, but basically I was too exhausted to even have any fun. And I was like, thank God I get to go home after this and like not have to work so hard to survive. But for some reason that experience just kept coming back. It's like it had gotten under my skin and just kept coming back up at the weirdest moments and beckoning to me. Like, don't you want to try that again? Don't you want to see if maybe you could do it better? You know, like how those, the hardest things you do, it's like type two fun. You know, you have this super time and then, then it comes back and it's like, man, I accomplished something like you worked really hard and then you got this amazing sense of accomplishment. And so I had always wanted to kind of go back, but it never worked out to go back. And then all of a sudden here was my chance to, to go back in the winter, like the real Alaskans, you know, and like be in this one room cabin and tough it out. And like, I don't know, just kind of find out who I was. Cause I didn't know who I was as a person alone. And that sounded like a major opportunity for me to not only go back to a place I really wanted to see again and experience again, but to, I guess, kind of reconstitute myself after a major heartbreak. All right. So you went to Alaska the first time and then uh, you got married um, and then got divorced and then went back to Alaska. So, so what was the process from going from living in Alaska and surviving, which is one thing to, you know, doing dog sledding. Well, so, um, so I had that summer internship at the park service kennel then, and years later, here I am back in Alaska for the winter. 
And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back to Montana to my forest service job after this. And then I get offered a backcountry ranger position in Denali national park for the summer. And I was like, man, I can't pass that up, you know? So I took that job. And then, um, and then the, the following winter, I was selected to be one of the two volunteer mushing positions for the park service kennel. So I had done that summer internship at the kennels, but I had never gotten to be one of the real mushers, you know? And so I was like, hell yeah. So I took that job and that was crazy. Like one of the guys I worked with, he had just worked for four time. I did a rod champion, Jeff King for four years. And so he had been training race dogs for years and like running races and he was like, man, the stuff we're doing here at the park is insane. Like, he was like, this is, this is like combat mushing, he said. And, um, because out in the park, there's no, tra- I mean, there's no motorized vehicles allowed. So we're just putting in the trails ourselves, like on snowshoes or the dogs will put trail in depending on the condition. Sometimes it's like super deep and they'll look back at you like, nah, you're, I'm not doing this. And, um, so we had to it was, it was a really cool job. I mean, we had to haul researchers and all kinds of equipment and stuff out into the park. Um, my favorite trip was hauling these, um, soundscape monitoring stations that were powered by these big, heavy batteries, like 50 pound batteries and also solar panels. So I had like these glass solar panels in my dog sled (laughs) that I was so terrified of breaking. And, um, I mushed those like 90 miles out into the park and we set everything up and, um, the, the scientist who monitors the soundscape was like about to press go basically on the record. And the recordings last for like a month or two at a time, depending on how cold and or, and or sunny it is. And, um, right before he pressed play, the dogs started howling and they were all looking in the same direction. They were howling, howling. And then they stopped and all their ears were perked up. And then like 10 seconds later, here come this, uh, like this eruption of howls from like a quarter mile away. That was a pack of wolves. And then they fell silent and then the dogs howled again. And then the dogs fell silent and the wolves howled back. And it was like back and forth for 10 minutes. And all of us were just standing there with our jaws hitting the floor, you know, like, Oh my God, like this is the most magical moment of my life. And, um, so we, we had some pretty awesome magical trips with the dogs. And after that, I felt like I had pretty good know-how in like crazy situations with dogs, but I, but I didn't have the, the distance, you know, like in these races, you're going about a hundred miles a day. And when I worked for the park service, we went like 10 miles a day and granted those 10 miles were pretty hard earned. Cause you know, you strap on the snowshoes and walk for probably 50% of that in front of your team, putting a trail in depending on where you are. But, um, but it was a totally different beast. And while I was working for the park service kennels, I volunteered at Iditarod. And that was the first time I saw, you know, the inner workings of a sled dog race. And I would see these mushers come in and do all the things that I knew how to do, you know, like I had just been doing all this all winter. And I I was like, man, I could do this, you know, like I just know that I could do this. And not only, you know, that I could, but that I want to, and I want to have my own sled dog team. Like it, I just kind of like found the thing that made me click and made me tick. <laughs> um, and so then the next winter I worked for Jeff King, who is the local musher here in Denali, who is the winningest musher of all time. He's made millions of dollars winning sled dog races. Wait a second. There are and, millions of dollars worth of prize money for dog <laughs> yeah. sled racing? Yeah. I mean, he's like, he is super successful. I mean, over the course of 25 years. But yeah, he, I mean, so I worked for him for a winter and got to run my first race. And I learned, I mean, I learned so much from that guy. He's still such a good friend and he was such a major mentor to me. But um, when I worked for him, we bought our first 
puppies and like made the decision, Andy and I, my husband now, um, made the decision to start our own sled dog kennel. And we're like, oh my God, we're insane. Here we go. Let's just do this. So then years went by, you know, like we had these puppies, we raised them up, we bred them to other dogs and raised those puppies up. And years later, we finally had dogs who were like old enough to be training and we finally had enough dogs to assemble a race team and like run our qualifiers. So you have to qualify to run these giant races. You can't just sign up out of nowhere. Oh, Um, wow. I didn't know that. So what are some of those qualifying races or uh, requirements? Yeah. Like the, the Yukon Quest, you have to run 500 miles of qualifying races and the Iditarod, you have to run 750 miles of qualifying races before you can even sign up. So we spent the next couple of years doing that and then signed up for the thousand milers. So it was a pretty long, you know, it was a long vision, like seeing this dream and working and working and working toward it and then finally getting to do it. Holy cow. So so this isn't something you just decide to do one day. I mean, you have to like raise dogs from puppies and get to know them and their personalities and then learn how they all work together how many dogs do you typically take? Uh, so the maximum number of dogs you can have on the quest is 14. And then um, the year I ran Iditarod, the maximum was 16. And this year they they decided 14. All of the mushers actually voted for it to be 14 instead of 16. Just because 16 is an insane amount of power. I mean, 14 is crazy powerful. But 16 is like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so fewer than I expected. Yeah, especially now, you know, like the the race, the race conditions are changing. Um, you know, climate change has really taken a toll on the races up here. And um, at least in my Iditarod, which you haven't read the Iditarod chapter yet, but man, it's a wild ride. But there there are hundreds of miles of no snow. Um, so I had this giant dog team with like no stopping power hands down the craziest thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm not going to, I don't want to like give any spoilers here, but there were some, some wildlife encounters, some craziness that happened on that race for me. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a years, years long dream. Um, but you know, I'm so proud of us for making it happen. I mean, now between my husband and I, we've each run two thousand mile races. So our kennel has run four, Um, and yeah, the thing you said about the puppies, you know, like I got super emotional at the start line of my Yukon quest in 2015, looking at these dogs that were my first litter of puppies. I mean, I, they were born into my hands and now here they were these super brawny siblings that were just like kicking ass and they ran every last mile with me. You know, I slept in the straw with them every night and it was just really overwhelming. You know, we had been on this lifelong journey together. Oh man, what an, what an awesome, you know, I have dogs and I'm, I'm close to them, but I can't imagine something like that with so many. Sounds awesome. And you, you just mentioned something briefly, but you, you camp in the straw with the dogs. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I read about this in my book, but the first time I went on a camp out, uh, like on a camping run, which is what we call them, um, in racing with Jeff, uh, we, we ran 40 miles and then we were going to camp for a few hours and then get up and run 40 miles back to the truck. And so we run the 40 miles, we get out there and here I am, you know, I'm a backcountry ranger in the summer. I've been a Knowles instructor. I've, I'm like, okay, I know winter camping, super prepared. I just kind of assumed like he had the tent and the you know, the Arctic oven or whatever in, in his sled, we get there to where we're going to camp. He gets out this giant parka that like goes down to his feet and puts that on, puts the straw down for the dogs. And after feeding the dogs, he just lays down on the ground. And I was like, what? We're, we don't have a tent. Like we're not going to sleep with, we're not going to sleep in a tent. So I am like just standing there looking at my team, like, okay, yeah, I can do this. Like I didn't bring a sleeping pad. I didn't, I mean, I had my 40 below sleeping bag, but that was it. And, um, so I, in all of my clothes, like fully booted and suited, I put down my 40 below sleeping bag on the ground in the straw, like right next to the dogs. 
And I had Solo, my favorite yearling on the team, crawl into my sleeping bag with me. It took a little convincing, but he, we love each other very much. He's now one of my main leaders and we've run <laughs> like probably 15,000 miles together, all told. But um, he, so he crawled right into my sleeping bag and I just fell into a deep sleep. Cause you know, like the sound of dogs breathing while they're sleeping, it's like the most lulling, relaxing thing ever. So he, he sent me right into sleep. And then I, we woke up like five hours later and we were just covered in snow. Like it had been dumping snow all night, but like neither of us had woken up. <laughs> so we woke up and was, we're just like blanketed in snow. Like, Oh, holy. Sh but yeah, so that was my first. And I was like, wow, okay, this is what we do. Like we just sleep on the ground with our dogs. And Andy, so my husband has trained one of our little leaders, Kebab, to just like crawl right in his sleeping bag and she sleeps on top of his chest and doesn't move. And she's like a, a little heater. She's like a little 35 pounder. But I like sleeping next to the big boys. <laughs> oh my gosh. Now that sounds awesome in one hand, but also like that's a, that's a lot to plan for. Yeah. Um, yeah. You carry everything you need. It's, so you, you said they sleep on straw. Do you literally carry like a bale of hay with you? Yeah. Yep. Um, I have a, it's on top, it goes on top of the sled bag. So inside your sled bag and like, it's, this is so much like packing a backpack, you know, like if you're going to go backpacking, like you like have like the weight management and the balance and all that kind of stuff. So it's just like that. And you put everything that's heavy, like, um, you know, let's say you're bringing like 40 pounds of meat and kibble for your dogs like all the super heavy stuff goes right in front of you so if you're standing on the dog sled you're looking down into the sled bag all the heaviest stuff is like right there in front of your feet and like um basically right beneath your handlebars so you can like you know manhandle that weight better because it's right there like um and then the farther out toward the toe of the dog sled is where you put everything light so like that's where you put your sleeping bag and your dog coats and, you know, like booties and stuff that's like lighter gear all goes there. Then you zip your whole sled bag up and on the top of it, you strap on a bale of straw or like I have a tail dragger sled now and I put the bale of straw in the back, like behind me. So, so hay is all the dogs need to stay warm. Oh yeah. It's super insulating. Have I mean, like, have you ever been in a barn in the winter? I mean, I guess so, but not in Alaska, <laughs> but yeah, it's a huge difference. I mean, it's, yeah, it's mega insulating. In fact, it's so insulating that we can't like when we're transporting the dogs in the, we have a dog truck with like a 16 hole dog box. So basically like every, I'm trying, I mean, it's like if you're looking at a giant cabinet and every door that you open in the cabinet inside of the cupboard, it's like the size of a dog kennel. And so it's like a giant, we have like a massive truck. And um, so in there, if you're transporting the dogs in the summertime at all, you have to take all the straw out. Like it's, it's way too hot. Like it, the dogs can overheat and it's really dangerous. Um, so do you get more straw every day or you kind of gather it back together when you wake up? Yeah. Oh, every camp. Like you, you try to gather up as much as you can. Like, so on the Yukon Quest, there's up to 200 miles between checkpoints. And so I run like 50 miles at a time. You know, so I'll run 50 miles, stop and camp, put the straw down and then put, pick as much of it back up as possible, put it into a straw bag that I carry for all the loose straw and then um, go 50 miles, camp again, pick up all the straw again, keep on going. So not only do they sleep out there in the cold well with straw, but still they're just out there. They're running. You said 50 and 100 miles. You mentioned this like those are days on a bike miles the, the dogs are running that far let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible that is plenty of that for now let's get back into the episode yeah they the dogs so this is the cool thing about the dogs i mean they completely kick like you, you are hands down the weakest link in the team as the human and, um, the sled dogs, like, so actually the, um, the department of defense has a study on sled dogs and actually several kennels who are our friends, like contribute to the study, but sled dogs, because of their metabolism, the, the way that they metabolize fat and protein, they get stronger 
as the days go on in a race. Whereas you, the human, are getting like weaker <laughs> and, and more tired because you're just getting super sleep deprived. So with the sled dogs, like let's say you're running an equal run rest schedule. So let's say I run six hours and then I stop and camp and we, we rest six hours and then we get up and run six hours again. And then we stop and rest six hours. So as the race progresses, you'll notice mushers. If you're watching the Iditarod, which is going on right now, um, as the race goes on and they've passed like the 400, 500 mile mark, you'll see them start to cut that rest because the dog's don't need as long of a time to recover. Their recovery time gets faster as they, as they travel. It's crazy. And so the department of defense studies them because they're like, how can we learn from this for humans? Like mostly for soldiers. Um, but like, you know, as they get more, as they're more like hardened and running farther every day, they're getting stronger. Like how? And so, um, that's just how they are. I mean, they're, they're the most, they're the most incredible athletes on the planet. Um, so yes, they can, <laughs> they can turn around my team. When I crossed the finish line of the Iditarod, they dragged me across the finish line. I couldn't stop. And, um, so it took like five people standing on my sled and they were like jumping and harness banging. And then they all started howling and like, I'll never forget their howls, like bouncing off the buildings of Nome after we had just gone 1000 miles and there they are ready to take me all the way to the North pole. I mean, I was like, you guys have got to be kidding me. And we missed the turn for the dog yard at the end of the race. Like they, they were like, just going to drag me into oblivion. It's, it's insane. Gosh, that is so unbelievable. I mean, to have run a thousand miles, like you said, and, 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 you know, their dog, you said you've travel with them and they're like like pets in a way you know i look at my dogs right here they couldn't run they couldn't run two miles but to know that those genetics are in them those that ability is gosh that is so crazy to me i had no idea that they ran that far and continued to get stronger as a race went on and can still be you know the the animals that hang out with you and watch netflix together you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's amazing because you know we just we do tours at our house and we just had this group here yesterday and they're sitting in here on the couch and we have like three of our so i'm in a 16 by 20 cabin we're in we live in a one-room cabin with our two-year-old daughter and um so we had like this group of five people in here and three of our lead dogs in here and all three of them are like buried in the laps of these visitors like getting belly rubs and like cleaning their ears and you know, getting all kinds of loves. And it's like, and I was like, yeah, they just ran a thousand mile race last week. Like they, like these dogs who are crazy, you know, like crazy good athletes, like they're, they're still dogs, you know, there's still these like loving, amazing dogs with each with their own very distinct personality. And, you know, my main leader solo, like basically loves tennis balls just as he loves, just as much as he loves running and lead. So it's, it's super cool. I mean, like just to get to see how complex they are and it's like having 30 friends outside, all of whom are different, you know, who gets along with who, you know, you know, who has the potential to do this. So you give them the opportunity to, to shine, like kind of like a basketball coach. (laughs) Gosh, I feel like there's so much to learn about each dog. This is way more complex than I realized it was. I know. It's funny because, I mean, someone just asked Andy yesterday, like, oh, because my husband has a PhD in poetry. And they're like, what? oh. PhD in poetry? I know. He's, he, he is, oh, I mean, there's, that's what I love about Alaska is like, no one makes sense up here. Um, I know it's like, I work with like a bunch of scientists at the park and all of us like poop into holes in outhouses in the ground. Like none of us, <laughs> we like live, <laughs> live like uh. cavemen. Um Anyway, it's so funny, but, but the, the people were like, so when you're on the runners, you have all this time to like, think about philosophy and write poetry. And Andy's like, no, I, I mean, I'm thinking about like, oh, Haas's gate changed. Like what's going on with him? Is his harness rubbing? I should put him on the other side. And then you look at the next dog and you're like, oh, Oryx has a snowball in her booty. So we're going to stop and fix that. Like, I mean, like ev- all of these tiny little details, like you, your mind is just constantly getting worked. That is just so 
So nuts. Now, now I'm reading the book, and, and the dogs are kind of bigger and smaller than I expected. What is kind of the average size dog um, for the race? So the average size racing dog is between like 30 and 60 pounds. And um, our dogs, <laughs> so Haas, which is the one I just talked about, he is an 80-pound dog. And so he like he doesn't make any sense for racing because with racing, you know, like you might have to carry a dog in your sled for a distance, you know, like if something happens, you can't make them run. Like you, you don't, you, you're, you can never make these dogs run and you don't want to, you don't want them to run if they get hurt. And, um, like Haas, you know, if, if he gets hurt, then you're putting an 80 pound dog in your dog sled on top of all of that food I just talked about and all of that gear you know, like you don't want to ask the rest of the team to carry that dog, but Haas is so good that we like take the risk and he's finished with us every time. (laughs) Um, but most people don't have dogs that big. We just really wanted dogs that we could go on big camping expeditions with too, like out in the park. Cause we live right on the edge of the park and you know, there's no trails there. You have to put them in yourself. So you need dogs that are pretty big with long legs and able to break trail in in that deep snow out there. So we, we wanted dogs that could do it all. So ours are a little bit bigger and hence a little bit slower, you know, like we don't have, like, we're, we're never going to win a race. We're, we're just in it to, for the, for the quest, like for the personal, um, transformation that you go through and for that camaraderie with your dogs. Um, so yeah, our guys are pretty big. So our dogs are between, on average, between 40 and 60 pounds. And then there's Haas, who's who's 80 pounds. Wow. You know, I, I have two dogs and they're both on opposite ends of that spectrum. One's just under 40 pounds and the other one's right at 80. And man, they seem like two completely different um, capabilities there. So the fact that you have dogs on your team that are the size of both of those just blows my mind. They, they seem so different to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, like most of our dogs are pretty of a piece these days. Like, but when we first started our kennel, it was like a pretty good hodgepodge. (laughs) And now that, now that we've been doing it for, let's see, we started our kennel in 2011, 2012. So yeah, we've kind of gotten our, our style of dog pretty, solid here like all of our neighbors are like oh that's a pace dog like you they all kind of look the same at this point wow so so you're you've gotten it to that point now um so yeah so once you get your dogs where they need to be uh and and you start racing now you've done um not only the Iditarod but the Yukon Quest can you can you tell us about those two kind of how they differ and um just your experience with them and how difficult each of them are most people don't run the Yukon Quest. Like the Yukon Quest is considered the harder race because you have up to 200 miles between checkpoints. It's a month earlier, so it's that much colder, that much darker. You know, on my rookie, on my Yukon Quest, the coldest it got was 68 below zero. And that that's very rare on the Iditarod because that is, you know, the Iditarod is happening right now in beautiful, sunny March. Um but there's still some serious, like huge storms coming off the Bering Sea right now that everyone's about to get faced with. Um, I mean, like neither one of them is easy. They're both extraordinarily difficult. Um, and so when I, so I ran the Iditarod the year after I ran the quest. So I'm going in the Iditarod thinking, man, if I can run the Yukon quest, like I got this, you know, this isn't, I know everybody says it's hard, but you know, there's no way it's as hard as the quest. And I mean, I was so wrong because on the Yukon Quest, like, yes, there's far fewer checkpoints. There's only nine checkpoints across the course of a thousand miles. Um, but at most of those checkpoints, I got to see Andy and, you know, he was driving the truck. Like a lot of the checkpoints are along uh, a highway. So like you, you, your friends and family can drive there and see you. Like no one's ever allowed to help you in either race, but but I got to see them, you know, like, and I got to get that moral support and get that boost. And on the Iditarod, it's completely off the trail system. The only way that you can get to those checkpoints is either on a dog sled, on a snow machine, or by a little airplane. And, um, so I didn't see, like, I was so much more isolated and, 
I didn't realize how much that was going to affect me. Um, you know, cause it's like, you can't really let your guard down and let it all out and complain <laughs> and like cry unless it's someone you really love, you know, like it's like a family member and then you just let it all out, you know? And so, or, or same thing goes for if you had an incredible, you know, magical experience and you want to tell someone about it, you like, you want to share that with someone. And, um, and I didn't really get to do that on the Iditarod. I did travel most of the race with one of my very best friends, Ryan Olson, who, um, she and I ran, we were the only two women to finish the quest the year before. And, um, she, (laughs) she is amazing. And we complimented each other very nicely. Like she was super organized and always knew exactly what time we were getting up and, planned our runs to always be at night because the dogs are getting too hot during the day and she like had us on this super like a military schedule and she was an accountant so she like had all the numbers you know whereas I am like yeah that's not me yes and I'm like really hard to get down like I'm nothing is really that big of a deal we got this like let's just travel together we can do anything together so we like we kind of had this yin and yang thing going where whenever I would get down or worried, she would pick me up and whenever she'd get down, I'd pick her up. And, um, so thankfully we had that, but it's still, it was still, it was like, you know, two in the far North. It was like two of us against the world. And, um, it was pretty lonely out there. And mentally the Iditarod was so much harder because of that. Wow, that yeah, I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet, but that seems incredibly daunting. So I'm I'm looking forward to those uh those firsthand accounts of the race. Yeah. Yeah, there there's some I don't want to ruin the book cuz it, it definitely once you get to the races, it's a, it's a page turner like like some goes down. <laughs> so I don't want to ruin it, but um but yeah, there's there were some things that happened and definitely daunting is a good way to describe it. So do you have any, you know, stories you could share that wouldn't be too uh, revealing of the book, but something that could give people a little taste of what to look forward to? Um, oh God, I have so many stories. Uh, let me think. So <laughs> I, this one is in the book, but I love this story. So it's, it's kind of cool. Um, so it's, so we, Ryan and I were traveling across Norton Sound. So if you look at a map of Alaska, you'll see Norton Sound and you'll be like, okay, that's the ocean. And you're like, yeah, man, we are traveling across the ocean, like across the frozen sea, you know, dog sleds going up and over frozen ocean waves, like the endless ocean horizon. I mean, like magical experience. And it was right at sunrise. And, um, you could just see, all you could see was like the line of the horizon out there as the sun was coming up. And I mean, you know, we started the run in total pitch blackness and then, um, and you could feel this different kind of cold and like a saltiness, you know, like it's like, we are on the, we are on the ocean. (laughs) And so we were running across, across there on this beautiful morning and the sun was coming up. And everything turned, you know, deep, deep red and purple. And I stopped my sled. Ryan was right behind me. And Ryan had been carrying the ashes of a perfect stranger. So this is one thing I kind of learned like doing these extraordinary things is that um, you can have these very intimate moments with strangers. Like they they see you living this dream and they're they're like, my loved one would have loved this you know? And, um, and so the, this family had given these ashes to Ryan to spread, um, on the Iditarod trail. And at this point I was like, this is the most insanely beautiful place ever. And I like, it's just a place that it feels like nobody else would ever be, you know? And so I stopped my sled and I turned around and I was like, man, now's the time for old Bob, you know, like this is the place. And she's like, I just did it. Like, I just, I just spread them back there. It's so beautiful. And, um, I was like, well, it's really cold. Like, let's have a dance party. And so we put our snow hooks in, which is the only way. Oh, a dance party (laughs) on the frozen sea. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, like you've probably been out in the rain and on a 
backpacking trip and like you got to do like the keep the warm dance so um we put our snow hooks in and i walked back to her and (laughs) we're like standing in the middle of these two dog teams that all the dogs are looking at us like what the hell and um we put on (laughs) we we put on feel right by mystical which is i don't know if you've heard it but you should definitely listen to it after this um (laughs) So we're like, we're like out there in the middle of the ocean with our giant parkas on and our big boot, like our moon boots, you know, we just spread this dude's ashes and we're (laughs) laughing hysterically and dancing, like bobbing up and down, dancing to this hilarious rap song, um, in the middle of Norton sound. And we're like, okay, yeah, we're warm. Let's hit it. You know? So we like get back on our sleds and keep on going and. The sun came up the rest of the way, and there we are out on the ocean together. Um, and we had like kind of a magic carpet ride into the next checkpoint, which was very, very well earned at this point in the race. So, um, yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> I did not expect any any of that. <laughs> you could say the same about about this life. It was, yeah, that was good time. Oh gosh, I can only imagine. Jeez. Um, so, so in the last few years, you've, you've kind of started another adventure, which is, uh, having a child. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the, the challenge of having, raising a child, an infant in Alaska? Oh man. Yeah. The not having running water thing is starting to get old. I mean, you know, babies are, babies are dirty. Like they, like in the first year of their life, they're like spitting up all the time. They're pooping on their clothes. Like now it is potty training. So there's lots of peeing on stuff and we can't like wash anything or give her, like we give her a bath in a little horse trough. Like we heat up water on the stove, (laughs) put water in the horse trough. She takes a bath once a week. Um, so like that's been pretty tough but honestly the toughest thing and I'm so glad I went through this transformation last year but I identified as a long distance dog musher like that was the thing I was the most proud of and that was who I was like it defined me what this accomplishment these accomplishments defined me and so right after I had Ada I had her in December and then, you know, we followed all of our friends running the quest and a couple months later in February and running the Iditarod. And then, um, cause I, I got pregnant with her right after I finished the Iditarod. So she was, she was like a gnome baby. <laughs> um, so we, so like, yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, so the next, that next winter when she was, you know, a year old, um, I had signed up for the quest again. And I was like, you know, I was struggling, like the postpartum era of motherhood is incredibly difficult and I'm a tough person and I, and I struggled, I struggled hard. And, um, I was like, I need to be, I need to go, I need to be myself again. You know, like I want, like I need my body back and I need my life. Like I need that part of my life back for my own mental health. And so I signed up for the race in August. I, I was still nursing. I like signed up for the race with this baby in my arms and, um, and, and got busy training and trained this dog team up. And then one month before the big, before the start of the quest was, um, in our training schedule, our first big training run. So 150 mile camp out run. And my best friend, Brent Sass, who just won the quest again this year for the second time, he, um, um, was like, okay, you know, let's go on this run together. We're going to run 150 miles from Fairbanks to my homestead in Eureka and Andy and Ada are going to get in the truck and drive around to my house and meet us there. Like basically mimicking a, a Yukon quest run. You know, he was like, all of your camping runs you've been doing, you've been coming right back home. Like you need to know what this feels like leaving your daughter before, we get to the start line of this race, you know? And, um, oh my God, I'm so glad he made me do that because I got there. I I loaded up my 14 dogs, went to Fairbanks with Andy and Ada. It's Ada's bedtime, right? When we get there, she's screaming and crying. She's hungry. Andy's super stressed out. 
And like, I'm about to leave him alone with her for three days or for two days, you know, however long it was going to take us to get there. And I, I was like, why am I doing this? Like it was, I like something in me changed where I realized like, I love running my team 40 or 50 miles, like five or six hours and coming home and being Ada's mom. Like I, I, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Like I can't, I don't have to just be her mom or just be a dog musher. I can do both of those things and be really happy doing both. And, um, and so I dropped out of the race one month before the start. I, we had, you know, I had, we had all these sponsors and people coming out to help us and everything. And I had to let them all down, but everybody was like totally understood, you know, like that. I think probably all the parents in our friend group were like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, this is not a surprise. Um, but like, no one can tell you that, you know, like you have to figure that out for yourself. And so, so I figured that out and, um, I've been so happy since then. Like that whole identity crisis that I had was solved. It was like, it's like, man, I like, I can still be a badass dog musher and go do some epic run and then come home at night and like snuggle with my kid. So, um, so that has been, that's been the biggest thing is like realizing that, that it doesn't have to be all your eggs in one basket. Oh gosh, that's so good to hear. I'm I'm expecting soon, or my wife and I are. So uh, it's good to hear from people like you that that's learns to reshape that identity and not have it so tied up in their adventures. Ah, oh my God! Congratulations! I'm actually pregnant right now. <laughs> Holy crap! Thank you. You too. <laughs> Thanks. Oh man, at the time, I like, got the first time. I was like, "How the f- does anybody do this twice?" Um. But now, yeah, here I am. Uh, I was like, she's got to have a sibling. Um, man. Oh, man, you're in for a hell of a ride. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's going to be an adventure because I, I just didn't. It wasn't necessarily something I wanted even a year ago. But as it gets closer, I'm excited. And I'm not so, you know, feel like as you mature, you don't tie up your identity so much in what you do. You can kind of let it go again, and you don't have to totally give up being a badass. <laughs> like, you're even more badass because you're a parent, too. Yeah, and, and it seems like they can just kind of go with you once they get to a certain point. H- have you found that to be true? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and now, you know, Ada, She so when she was little teeny, I'd put her in my parka, and we'd take her out on the team, and she just fell asleep, like, every time. Um And now she has her own little dog sled. She's She's, like, a little over two years old. And, um, she has a little dog sled that you can put like one dog on and she loves all that. She like knows everybody's names. She's like, she gets really concerned when like, if Andy's out on a dog run and like, not everyone is in the yard, she's like, all the dogs need to be home. And it's like, like she knows when, when someone's missing, you know? And, um, it's awesome. Like it's, that's the coolest thing because, you know, you have no idea what your kids are going to be like. Like, Ada is obsessed with ballerinas right now. She watched Andy finish the Yukon Quest last week wearing a sparkly tutu and a unicorn tiara. Like, that's oh what she was wearing gosh. at the finish line that's over her cute. snowsuit. <laughs> and, like, we didn't teach her that, you know? We're, like, filthy dog mushers. And, um, like, they're, they're all, they're, like, born with their personality in there. And you have no idea what it's going to be. And so to see her take an interest in these dogs and love being on a dog sled is like super heartening, you know, cause you can't force them to love what you love, but it's pretty cool to see her kind of start loving it. Wow. That's, that's really cool. Now, now do you plan on staying out there long enough for maybe the kids to get into it and, uh, become proficient at the sport or you guys going to look for to make home somewhere else? Yeah. I mean, we'll be here for a while. Like, we had plan like we in the future we'd like to build like a whole new house like a real house <laughs> that isn't it, it's like a one room backcountry log cabin like it's like a public use cabin basically like it's pretty bare bones um so it was like the dream for two young newly married people who are starting a dog sled kennel like it was like 
like, hell yeah, this is like the place of our dreams. And we're on 10 acres right here overlooking, you know, millions of acres of wilderness. Like you can't see a single roof line from here. Um, and you could just like mush from our house out and out to wonder Lake. Like you, you can, you can go to the ocean from here basically. Like it's amazing. Um, but yeah, you know, now the realities of parenting and having a kid who's running around and wanting to, you know, play with, (laughs) play with everything in sight. It's like, we need more space. This is insane. Gosh. Yeah. That, that sounds like a dream, honestly, but I I don't think I could get over how just cold and dark the winters are, especially with kids. Oh yeah. I mean, it's not like you can go outside and play all winter here. You know, if it's 40 below, like you need inside space to play, um, with a two-year-old anyway, like she gets cold after 20 minutes out there. So, so yeah. It's... Oh, come on, kid. You're going to have to toughen <laughs> <I know>. up. <laughs> well, like she doesn't understand, she doesn't understand self-care yet. You know, like she's like no survival instinct. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh gosh. Poor thing. I'm just playing. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure once they, I'm sure they'll be the toughest kids ever. <laughs> <laughs> but uh well awesome yes so so how can people find out more about the book and purchase it and all that jazz um it's available everywhere so um online amazon barnes and noble target um uh, someone just told me they saw it at costco i mean it's like all over the place your local bookstore hopefully um yeah so it's everywhere and um so i also recorded the audiobook like I read it and that was a crazy adventure too. <laughs> but like the whole time I was reading it, the audiobook producer and engineer were like, Oh, this is the scene in the movie where this would happen. And like, cause it was like, just a, it was so fun. It was like a fun experience for them to like be along for the ride. And, um, <laughs> actually my friend, so the audiobook is eight hours and 41 minutes long. And my friend Brent, the one who made me go on that that fateful training run where I decided I could be a mom and a musher, um, he was like, "I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go on a long training run and listen to the whole thing." Like yesterday, he did this, and I was like, "Or no, the day it came out," and I was like, "Dude, that's a really long time like to hear me talking in a row." And he was like, "So then, <laughs> like nine hours later, I get this message that was like." 78 miles, eight hours and 41 minutes. As soon as I got home and put the dogs away, you stopped talking, nailed it. (laughs) And he like listened to the whole thing. I was like, man, you're such a good friend. Like nobody would do that. Wow. That, that sounds like an awesome day. Just listening to podcasts, running dogs. Holy cow. That, that honestly sounds so cool. (laughs) And that's that's kind of wise of you to do audiobooks because you know that's in, can t- that market continues to grow. Podcasts are growing. I mean, people can't. Pe- a lot of people just don't have the time to sit and watch something anymore. So they want to take something just as entertaining, put it in their ears, and go about their day. And if you can freaking listen to a podcast and dog sled, shoot, you can listen to a podcast doing just about anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, they told me like they're like the only thing in terms of like literary stuff where sales have just been going up and up and up every year is audiobooks. And I had a blast recording it, too. Like it it was we had so much fun. And from from what I've heard, the audiobook is a lot of fun to listen to. So I recommend that, too, for your listeners. Well, I'm glad I'm glad one aspect of all this has been easy. Um, the audiobook is from the stories to to your personal stories, you know, going back, the ones filled with pain to raising the kids and gosh, life in Alaska, it all seems just so challenging. Yeah. But you know, nothing worth doing is easy. So that is like the mantra <laughs> of this show. Gosh. But yeah, thank you. This has been really fun. And I love like this format is so much more my style. Like just having a conversation is a lot of fun. Well, good. Cause uh, yeah, we're not, we're not NPR. We don't have it all scripted out beforehand. It's probably like a lot of, like one of your races. You, you do your best to prepare and then just kind of wing it for about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, that this is like such a relief compared to my whole day yesterday. So, oh, before you go, what what's the best way people can uh, follow you guys? If people want to follow us on social media, our Instagram is Hey Moose Kennel, all one word, and and our Facebook is Hey Moose Kennel, also. Hey Moose Kennel. That. Yes. It sounds like there's a story there or something. <laughs> the story of it is the story of it is in the book. But yeah. Well, thanks again for uh being on and yeah, I I really look forward to hearing it and yeah, congratulations once again on the book and on having the second child and, you know, more adventure to be had, I'm sure. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. That's going to be awesome. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. All right. Uh, Have a good one. Okay, you too, Mason. All right, bye. Bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.